Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Jamie Rosenberg, Assistant Editor for the American Journal of Managed Care, and this week I'm here in Washington, D.C. at the Academy Health National Health Policy Conference, where healthcare stakeholders from around the country have joined together at the nation's capital to make sense of the country's health policy agenda and to discuss new and innovative ways for addressing healthcare, as well as challenges that persist. For this podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking with three health experts about national and state health policy, addressing social determinants of health, and using data to improve healthcare. First, I sat down with Dr. Melinda Bunton, a professor in the Department of Health Policy at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, to get a sense of how healthcare played out in the recent midterm elections and what she expects in the year ahead. So to begin, prior to, during, and after midterm elections, what did you learn voters were concerned about in regard to health care? Well, one of the points that I made on this panel was that although you might have heard that healthcare was a top issue on voters' minds, what actually was going on was that this election, more than any in recent history, was about uh, voters expressing either their support of or opposition to the president. And issues like healthcare were really secondary. Now, if you add up all of the issues related to healthcare that people are concerned about, you can get a majority of voters saying that they're highly concerned about healthcare. But we need to, as health policy people, keep that in context. Really, they're just as issue interested in gun policy, education policy, economic issues as they are in healthcare right now. So during the panel, you mentioned that Americans were nervous for change in healthcare. So did you learn that there was more desire for healthcare to stay intact the way it is now, rather than have new changes with sort of fear that certain laws or protection would be altered? Yes. When you dug underneath why voters were interested in healthcare issues, what it appeared to me from the data, for example, from the Politico uh, Harvard T.H. Chan School poll, was that voters really wanted to keep what they had recently gained in the healthcare arena. For example, they wanted people with pre-existing conditions to be able to keep their coverage. They didn't want people to lose insurance coverage, and they wanted Medicare benefits to stay the same. So that's a very different type of voter sentiment than looking for real change in healthcare. The only place voters were looking for change was in bringing down the cost of health care and in particular prescription drugs. So what did you learn this past election cycle that Americans were more aware of or concerned about than they were in the past? For example, we hear a lot about surprise medical bills or balanced billing. So did you notice that there were a lot of things that came to light that Americans haven't really thought about or brought up in the past? Yes, I think there's a whole variety of things that are going on that are making Americans more acutely aware of high healthcare costs. One is that more people with employer-provided insurance are facing higher deductibles than they have in the past, so that brings it home for them. A second is that just frankly, the cost of prescription drugs that are new in the market, they're terrifyingly high. Um, and the third is that people are hearing, um, either through social media or the news, about surprise billing, which is an artifact of more plans having narrow networks, and so when people get an out-of-network provider, whether deliberately or inadvertently, they may be experiencing a very high bill. And so those things are on the forefronts of Americans' mind. I recently saw a KFF health tracking poll that said about two-thirds of people volunteered that they were concerned, um, actively concerned, about a surprise medical bill. Wow. And so looking at both the new class of Congress and what's been in the works this past year, what do you think is in store for health care for 2019? What trends do you think we should expect to see or continue to see? 
Yeah, so in terms of health policy and what legislation Congress might be considering, I think Congress does listen to voters. So they're going to be thinking about high health care costs, they're going to be thinking about prescription drug costs, and they're going to be thinking about surprise billing. And we're already seeing a lot of this in Congress. We have a continued set of hearings um, that the Senate Health Committee is doing about health care costs. We have new hearings being set up on prescription drug costs, and we have pieces of active legislation at the federal level that are seeking to address surprise billing through thinking about ways to bring in some, perhaps, of the innovations that states have tried, like binding arbitration or setting benchmarks, um, but really a lot of activity in those three areas. And so the panel discussion focused a lot on states addressing health. So what are different ways that states are taking the lead on addressing healthcare costs and quality, such as Medicaid expansion or work requirements? Yeah, there was a lot of discussion uh, on the panel about what states are doing, um, really from my colleagues who are experts in that, uh, in that area. Um, and both Len Nichols and Hemi Torson from the National Governors Association talked a lot about the state of North Carolina, because they're the state that most recently got a major new permission from the government through an 1115 waiver to start trying some innovative new policies. So we are seeing some activity. Um, that uh, waiver is, is pushing beyond what waivers have done before, and, um, and so I think that that's the focus of attention. There's also discussion about what's going on in Arkansas with regard to work requirements, and there's a little bit of back and forth on the panel about that. Um, Grace Marie Turner posited that sort of in her view, um, it had been a fairly non-disruptive change to require uh, work of Medicaid recipients um, with 20,000 or fewer people uh, disenrolled and all of them given the opportunity to re-enroll in January. Um, uh, our, our moderator and one of the other panelists pushed back and said, we actually have learned already from what Arkansas did what not to do, which is especially in a rural state where there's little access to broadband. Um, we don't want to have it be that people have to attest that they're working through through an app or a website, and especially not one with limited hours, uh, given that uh, people have, um, have are now expected to be working um, and have may have interesting work schedules. Um, and then afterwards in the discussion and some of the questions from the audience about work requirements, people brought up other important facets. For example, we know that the opioid epidemic um, uh, is an acute social problem, and we know that we don't have adequate treatment resources in the community for people to get the treatment they need, whether for mental health disorders or substance abuse disorders. And so there's really a confluence of work requirements and yet the need for treatment for people to be in a condition to work. Um, so I hope that what I, one of the things that I said was that I hope these two debates come together and we have a productive discussion about how to get people to the state where they can work, um, they can um, uh, be um, more full members of society because that's really the goal of what people pushing the work requirements um, are for. And I'll just mention that uh, after the session, I had some people come up to me and tell me about the effects of work requirements in some of the other early implementing states. And just suffice it to say, there's a lot we don't know now about the unintended consequences of work requirements. And I think that's a theme in health policy. You know, we always have to take them in a careful, measured way and really do some research to figure out what's going on. And I think there's the potential for people to be abused um, if they really have to find work in order to keep their health benefits. Right. And you mentioned the opioid epidemic, which kind of uh, tied into social determinants of health or was being called healthy opportunities, which we hear more and more in discussions about addressing healthcare costs. Um, so how is this something that relies not just on national and state policies, such as including some form of them in Medicare Advantage plans, but also at the community level and including community physicians um, and kind of tying all that into it? 
Yes. So actually, this was um, the way that Len Nichols, one of our panelists, chose to kick off um, his, his initial discussion. Um, he's really passionate about the issue, and uh, he said it's, it's become such common sense that economists are even now trying to pretend they invented it, which is very funny. Um, so Len pointed out that there is research in a few areas showing that if you address social determinants of health, you actually do have a positive return on investment. And those areas are with severe mental illness um, and with transportation. Um, and with supportive housing, especially for people with severe mental illness and substance abuse disorders. So those are great places to start. Um, we know enough about investing in those areas that it should be something um, that we should advocate for at both the federal and state level. Um, in other areas, though, we still need a lot more experimentation. And that's really, I think, where the panel ended up at the, um, uh, the conclusion uh, of uh, the discussion, which was we need more experimentation with people tackling other types of social determinants of health. Um, other social risk factors, and we need to have, figure out how to better embed addressing those things in our value-based payment systems. Great. And is there anything else from the panel that you took away that you want to mention or bring up? Oh, gosh. Well, there were so many good, um, so many good points raised. It really was a fun panel to be on. Um, I would say that at the end, we were all asked sort of what our, our kind of sleeper issue was. Um, and I'll just uh, mention the one thing that I ended on. Um, I said it is a sleeper issue in part because people find it so boring, it puts them to sleep. But that's the issue of coding. Um, both these issues of upcoding to get more uh, reimbursement and the proposed changes in the evaluation and management coding, which are going to have ripple effects throughout all of our value-based payment systems if, in fact, they are implemented um, on the now-extended timeline that CMS is proposing. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. I also sat down with Dr. Pachara Shoker, Senior Vice President and Chief Community Health Officer for Kaiser Permanente, to discuss Kaiser Permanente's commitment to addressing housing instability and homelessness. So in May last year, Kaiser Permanente announced their $200 million impact investment to address housing instability. Why did Kaiser Permanente think it was important to address this in order to improve a patient's overall health? As an organization, we truly believe that health and housing go hand in hand. We can't expect people to be healthy if they don't have a stable roof over their heads. And what we know from research is that connection between housing and health is so strong. So we as a health organization, we truly believe that investing in housing is critical for the health of our members as well as the communities that we serve. And why is this so important to address for people with chronic conditions in particular? So when you think about people who are vulnerable, people who have medical conditions, chronic conditions, people who are on the street, what we know from research, they live 27.3 years less than those who are housed. And what we also know is readmission rates for people who are homeless is much higher than what it is for people who are housed. And even when people are in the hospital, those who are homeless stay 2.3 days longer than those who are not homeless. So we see the link there every day. We see it in our hospitals. The country sees it in its healthcare system. And we know health outcomes for people who are homeless are not nearly as good as those who are housed. 
you know, we know there is an increased risk of um, infectious diseases. There is an increased um, risk of uh, mental health and uh, wellness issues, addiction issues. Um, we know there are um, um, other risks that are associated with homelessness, and that's why we we know that that connection is so tight. And as a health organization, we have to be able to be thinking about housing as well. So a few weeks ago, Kaiser Permanente announced several initiatives as part of this funding. What were they? Can you dive a little deeper into them? So back in um, May of 2018, um, our chairman and CEO, Bernard J. Tyson, announced our $200 million commitment to impact investing uh, with a particular focus on preserving and expanding affordable housing in our communities. And we've worked really hard last year um, to get us to the point of the announcement that happened a couple of weeks ago. The three components of that announcement were, one, we've partnered with Enterprise, a community development finance institution and with Ebalzi, a local developer, to preserve affordability for a 41 um, multi-unit apartment building in Oakland. And people living in that building now will have affordability preserved for much longer, um, and they won't have to be looking for new places because that building have switched to a marketplace. So that was the first announcement right in Oakland. Also in Oakland, which is our, uh, the backyard of our national headquarters, we've made a commitment uh, to partner with community-based organization, with the city of Oakland, and with Alameda County to house the 500 plus people who are on the street, who are 50 and older, who have one or more chronic medical problems. And because of our work last year, we got to a point where we actually know these 500 plus people by name. We know where they hang out, we know their needs, and we can partner with the right community-based organization to ensure that they're getting housed in 2019. And the third piece of the announcement was a creation of a $100 million loan fund that will be available to our communities across the organization, um, across the country, to also be able to preserve or expand affordable housing. So those were the three pieces of the announcement uh, from a couple of weeks ago in Oakland. Great. And so, as you mentioned, you're partnering with Enterprise Community Partners, which is a national organization, among others, such as local organizations for these initiatives. So how important is it to collaborate with different groups for ensuring effective interventions to improve housing instability and homelessness? Well, look, I mean, homelessness is such a complex issue, and there's no silver bullet to solve for it. If there is one, it would have been there and we would have solved for it. Um, we also know that it requires a lot of people coming together, collaborating together to be able to make a difference, whether it's the federal government, state government, local government, and on the private side, whether it's the not-for-profit, the for-profit, we all have to be working together to be able to make a difference. And for us, as an organization that um, is a not-for-profit, that is a mission-driven, that's been in existence for 70-plus years, we need to find the right partners to be able to deliver on our mission to improving community health. Enterprise is one of the community development finance institutions that has an amazing history and track records in this country that has worked um, nationally across all um, different parts of the country. And we're so excited to be partnering with them to help us deliver on that impact investment announcement that we've made, uh, particularly in the Bay Area and now also through the National Loan Fund. But in addition to the 
Community um, Development Finance Institution, or the CDFI, we also partner with community-based organizations that are right in the communities that are working with people who are experiencing homelessness, that are working on the interface um, with government agencies to be able to make a difference. And at the same time, we're also working with government agencies. You know, the city of Oakland, the county of Alameda, we're working with cities and counties across every one of our footprint to be able to make a difference. Great. And so part of your panel discussion is dedicated to addressing social determinants like housing to improve care. What do you think have been the drivers and increased attention to these social determinants in recent years? Well, I think if you um, if you look about um, truly what impacts health, a lot of us would think immediately of healthcare systems per se. But what we know is that what impacts health happens actually outside the four walls of the health systems. What impacts health happens in the communities where people live and play and learn and work. So for us to be able to be effective in improving health, we have to be thinking about those factors that impact health. And truly, maybe up to 20% of what impacts health happens within the four walls of the health systems. The rest happens out there. It's the individual behavior. It's the social and economic factors. It's the built environment. And I think the country's catching up to that. And, And over the last few years, people started realizing that for us to be able to make an impact on total cost of care, on health outcomes, on community health, we have to be thinking more upstream. We have to be looking at the root causes of what impact health or the root causes of poor health and make a difference there. And that's when you start focusing on food security, housing security, transportation, economic opportunities, social isolations. And what we are learning from our members is they're also telling us that these are very important factors that's impacting the way they'd want to live their lives or their ability to thrive. And as the U.S. healthcare systems continues to adopt innovative ways to address the health of Americans, what other opportunities are there that are being underutilized currently? So in other words, are there other things outside of the doctor's office that the healthcare system should be paying attention to or addressing that they're not? I, I think for all of those factors that impact health that happens out in the community, we're going to see more and more commitment in from health systems to understand how those impact health and what are the interventions that we need to do to make a difference. And I think as we start experimenting with the type of interventions we need to do, we also going to need to be able to evaluate those interventions so we can see what works, what doesn't work, how do we build the evidence, how do we learn from the evidence, how do we take things to scale. So I think there are big opportunities out there to taking a lot of the interventions that are happening across the country right now and be able to figure out which ones work and let's take them to scale. I think there's a big role for uh, big data. Um, you know, in the healthcare system, we are using a lot more big data and predictive modeling and all of that. I think we're going to start to see a lot more of that on the community health side or on the um, upstream interventions that would make a difference. So I would anticipate we're going to see a lot of that. Um, You're going to see a lot more folks engage around climate change because, again, climate change and health are also so linked. And we have to be thinking about how do we protect the climate so that we make sure that we as human beings are staying healthy. So I think there are lots and lots of opportunities there to come. 
Perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Next, I spoke with Christopher Cullian, the Executive Vice President of Cotivity, who discussed the ever-growing role of data for improving both the cost and quality of care. So to begin, can you give some background on your experience in healthcare? Happy to, Jamie. I've been in healthcare over 30 years and held positions at the provider, payer, and health technology company level. Uh, I've had positions at Evanston North Shore Hospital, uh, the University of Chicago Medical Center, and I currently sit on the board of directors for Emerson Hospital in Massachusetts. Uh, On the payer side, I was at Cigna Healthcare for almost nine years, holding roles in population health, health advocacy, and responsible for disease management and case management programs. And uh, currently, I've been in the healthcare technology space for over the last six years, uh, and am at Cotivity Health. Uh, we are a healthcare technology, analytic, and services company uh, that works with payers and providers. So, as you mentioned, you currently serve as the executive vice president of Cotivity Health. So, what kind of healthcare stakeholders do you work with? What data do you collect? And how do you then utilize these data to help stakeholders improve efficiency and quality? So, we currently work with payers, providers, and employers across the U.S. Uh, And the data that we collect is both claims information from those payers, as well as clinical information around certain diagnoses and the the provision of healthcare services, as well as administrative data around where the sites of service and the delivery of care was. Perfect, so when discussing lower in costs in our healthcare system, low value care is often pointed to as a good place to start. So how do these data help identify where waste and low value services are in our healthcare system? So part of the uh, services that Cotivity provides is around payment integrity and payment accuracy, uh, as well as identifying where quality of care gaps sit in the system. So what we do for our customers today is we actually look through the uh, administrative claims that are submitted, make sure that the uh, proper claim diagnosis and site of service are aligned, and ensure the accuracy of the submission of those claims and then make sure that proper payment happens. So we're trying to do make sure that the right services are delivered, paid for in the right way uh, at the right time. Uh, in addition, we look for quality gaps uh, with our analytic services to help inform both the payer and the consumer and the provider on where additional care delivery is needed. And so we're at a time when there is an increased emphasis being placed upon the importance of these kinds of data in order to drive a plethora of healthcare decisions. So how has this massive collection of data shifted the healthcare system and its ability to improve care? So it's a fascinating time in healthcare where we are actually becoming uh, cross-functional in a continuum. Uh, So often before we were looking at one transaction on behalf of a consumer, and today with all of the data that's freely flowing and digitized through the system, we can really look at that whole person and the individual and their entire care delivery needs and health opportunities. Uh, And so what Cotivity is working on is continuing to take all of the information that we uh, bring in and creating that full 360 view of that consumer as they go through both the wellness and, and care delivery system. And so have you seen a big difference over the last five to 10 years in how we're able to collect and utilize these data? Absolutely. Uh, So much of the data before um, was used for transaction. And as transactional data, it had to be cleaned, it had to be high quality, it had to be accurate. And we put a high 
premium in the healthcare industry around the accuracy of that data. Today, with uh, advanced analytics and computer science, we can take in unstructured information, uh, notes that are in charts, uh, information that is not perfectly transactionally structured, and then augment and inform uh, both transactional execution of healthcare payment, but also looking at quality issues as well. And so the silos are breaking down. Are there any challenges with taking in, managing, and making sense of this abundance of data? Absolutely. Um, over time, being able to longitudinally uh, store that information, understanding contextually where it was collected from, uh, making sure that it was time-oriented uh, in its delivery, and then understanding the biases in the data. I think one of the things that is the greatest challenge for uh, healthcare technology and healthcare right now is we're getting more information and knowing where uh, that information is directing us with uh, with clear line of sight and where there's biases in the data is uh, one of the things we're learning right now. And so the title of your Academy Health session is Technology, Innovation, and the Future of Healthcare. So where do you think the future of healthcare is headed and what role does technology and data play in this? Well, I'm excited about where healthcare is going. There's so much opportunity to improve both the quality of the care that's delivered the accessibility uh, to care, and now uh, with the aging and silver tsunami that's coming to healthcare, the need for services is, is escalating greatly. Uh, and so with that, technology is going to help to make sure that our trained professionals are working at the highest of their license and their agency, uh, while we uh, help to increase their productivity with technology. But there's also a great uh, plethora of technology identifying new therapies, new um, uh, both uh, pharmaceutical and uh, digital therapies to help with care delivery, and also looking at process improvement, uh, what uh, care delivery uh, needs to happen in what order, what works best with each uh, different type of individual in the healthcare system, understanding their uh, unique health opportunities uh, and health disparities. Uh, and technology is really illuminating all of those insights. Um, I hope we can keep up with it. The session also discussed social determinants of health. How is data useful for addressing these aspects of a patient health and identifying and pinpointing where work needs to be done? I, I think this is one of the, the exciting areas of healthcare now is that we're not just thinking about uh, coming in and treating somebody for their fever or for uh, their broken arm but we're starting to think about the care that they need when we send them home from the acute care uh, setting. Social determinants of health really help us put a fancy label on understanding where someone lives and what their access to nutrition, transportation, housing, education, uh, financial means uh, is, and it allows us to make sure that we tailor their post-acute care or chronic care needs uh, with what accessibility they have to outside of the healthcare system services to restore their health. For more coverage from the Academy Health National Health Policy Conference, visit ajmc.com or see the show notes. You can get in touch with us by email info at ajmc.com or by following us on Twitter at ajmc underscore journal. And finally, if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.